Well, welcome back to Vernon First Baptist Church. My name is Randy Hamm, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my privilege to invite you to our podcast. And right now we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. And we have gotten through the Blesseds and Salt of Light. And now we are getting into some of the harder stuff that Jesus is instructing us and uh, what it means to be righteous and how our righteousness needs to eclipse that of the Pharisees. Um, so this is, uh, this is some deep stuff and some great stuff, and we invite you to join in as we look at this first part of the passage from Matthew 5, 17 and following. Enjoy. Join Jesus once again for a reading from the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be the subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother and sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks, be, Thanks to be to God. Well, we're right back into Matthew 5. Once again, a happy Mother's Day for all of you. This may not be the usual Mother's Day message as we are heading into uh, some serious stuff here with Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount. And so I invite you once again to turn to Matthew 5, but uh, this is for the sake of everyone, which I know mothers love to see their kids do well and always, as Jesus does. See, now there's a serious tension happening between Jesus, what he's up to, and how the people of God have been living according to God's law and prophets. Jesus realizes what it looks like here in Matthew 5, verses 17 and following. It looks like he's throwing out everything that they had believed, starting over. He's now the one that says who's blessed. He's calling this group, the light of the world, not the temple, 
not Jerusalem, the actual city on a hill. Is he doing something new? Yeah, you betcha. Is he throwing out the old? No way. At least, not in the way that it was created to be. Well, it's sort of like this. Do you, you know the body shop? Yeah, yeah, we have one right here in our own mall. The shampoo and lotion place, not, not the garage or the auto body shop. Way, okay, way back, I remember hearing that they have banana shampoo and that it's really, really good for your hair. And just recently, Hannah came back with a small bottle of it. Somewhat as a joke, since uh, one member of our family just can't take bananas, I won't say who he is. But I noticed on the bottle that it doesn't just say shampoo. And it doesn't even just say nourishing shampoo, which I'm sure it is. It says truly nourishing shampoo. Now, if they've truly, completely reimagined it? I don't know. You could be the judge. It's definitely better than just rubbing bananas into your hair. But this is what Jesus is getting at. He's not throwing out the old formula. This isn't something completely new, but now it will be truly nourishing in a way that it was always supposed to be. So let's take a look. Take a look right here, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish or do away with the law and prophets. Verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Wow. The law and prophets were leading up to something. And it's definitely not what the Pharisees have turned them into. That's for sure. Jesus' words here mean to fill or to fulfill. Mark 1.14 tells us that Jesus' first words in his public ministry were, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Or as another translation says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, we could take a lot of time here to unpack how the Old Testament has doctrinal teaching, predictive prophecy, and ethical precepts that are all looking for a fulfillment to be accomplished. But don't worry, we won't do that today. What matters is that Jesus is saying that he's the one that's going to do all that. It's not an abandoning of the past, but a fulfilling bringing the past into all he has for it. Of course, as we sang about today, all of his followers are longing for a righteousness, and he's the one that can bring it. Now, some are probably really excited about this new prophet, this Messiah that was so radical, but perhaps his next statement would put them in place. If we look at verse 19, he says, Therefore, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others according, accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Wait, what? 
We, we were blessed when we were poor in spirit, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, dikaiosune. Remember that word? The righteous, righteousness and justice, hungry for things being right the way that they were meant to be. The crowd thought that they could relax, that they didn't have to have this stuffy righteousness of those puffed up Pharisees. But now you're saying our dikaiosune has to be greater? than that of the Pharisees? Because listen to what he says. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. So nothing's going to pass away. You have to practice them. And you will certainly, if you don't surpass in your righteousness that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he getting at? Well, we need to realize that our understanding of righteousness can be different from God's understanding. And Jesus' focus is to clarify what this looked like, what it looks like, what he means. And he gives us plenty of examples of what a true righteousness, a truly nourishing righteousness looks like in our life. And we're going to look at a couple of them this week, and Pastor Lori will take a few more next week. So pray with me, and we'll jump in. Open our hearts, Lord. Open our hearts to your word today. And open my mouth to speak your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Dallas Willard says... When Jesus deals with moral evil and goodness, he does not begin by theorizing. He plunges immediately into the guts of human existence, raging anger, contempt, hatred, obsessive lust, divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, slapping, suing, cursing, coercing, and begging. It is the stuff of soap operas and the daily news and real life. So first, Jesus is telling us the true righteousness is about reconciliation and deals with our anger. Verse 21, he jumps in. He's not pulling any punches. He says, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, now, this is interesting. Jesus uses this formula again and again coming up here. He's saying he's not negating the law. You've heard it said this, but I tell you, he wants to unpack what the law is really about, what true righteousness looks like. And he says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Murder? No, no, I'm not a murderer. Well, most of us can say that, can't we? And maybe take a little bit of pride in that to some degree. There, but for the grace of God, go we. Well, Jesus says, it's just as bad to get angry, to stew on it. And if you speak out, like raka, he says, which just means empty or numbskull, watch out. You call someone a fool? 
The Greek here is moros. We've seen that before. You just call someone a fool, and it is hellfire. Now, to clarify, he's saying the fires of Gehenna is the, is the Greek word, and Gehenna is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Gehenom, meaning the valley of Hinnom. The valley over the wall of Jerusalem, it was known to be the accursed valley where slain enemies, and at one point even child sacrifices, were burned. Therefore gaining this image of a, a place of final judgment. Jesus is saying, you know Gehenna, that accursed valley of fire, that place of judgment? If you don't want to end up like that, don't be going around letting your anger dictate your life. Now, I took a recent stroll through Facebook this last week. And if Jesus is right, there are a lot of people who say they follow him lining up for some of this Gehenna fire themselves. Now, even Twitter, did you hear this? Twitter will begin to ask you if you really want to say that mean tweet you're about to post. Even they realize we have gone way over the edge. Jesus' point here? Making things right, reconciliation is the point. Not being right and getting angry about it. It's fascinating. Here in the passage, Jesus would show us even that reconciliation takes precedence over worship. Reconciliation even takes precedence over worship. Can you imagine what Jesus is really saying? He's talking to Galileans. If they were to worship by sacrifice, we're talking a three-day journey to Jerusalem, not just uh, sit down on the couch to find YouTube. They would be picturing someone purchasing an animal in the temple courts, then remembering their needed reconciliation. And they'd have to make that three-day journey again, this time probably with a, a goat or a sheep along with them, to be reconciled before coming back to make that sacrifice. Now, many of us love to worship, and the Lord loves our singing, our acts of worship and service. But perhaps we could be... a doing a bit more in the reconciliation front, couldn't we? And yes, it will be uncomfortable, bothersome, maybe a long journey for some of us, maybe just a phone call, but uncomfortable, at least emotionally. Are you angry with someone, with a group of people? Are you salty, becoming a little bitter? or have been bitter for a long time, who do you need to be reconciled with? Did a name pop into your mind or some faces? I encourage you to write them down. Seriously, right now. If you have some names that came up, write them down and say, okay, God, what can I do to make this right, to be salt and light in this situation, to be truly righteous before coming back to worship next week.
Then Jesus ups the ante. For true righteousness is about our relationships and even our sexuality. Verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. All right. Yeah, we can, uh, we can do that. Yeah, adultery. I don't do that. Okay, but I tell you, Jesus says, have you looked at a woman lustfully? <clears throat> well, well, you've heard the phrase, boys will be boys. I'm sure you have. Any House on the Prairie, Little House on the Prairie fans out there? I remember seeing one episode where Charles Ingalls, uh, well, they, they caught the boys spying on the girls. And Charles says, it's just natural curiosity, Harriet, to Harriet Olison. Boys will be boys, myself included. All of us boys like to go to the swimming holes to have a peep at the girls when they were frolicking in the water. To which Harriet replies, oh really? Well, I certainly don't remember any of the boys sneaking around the swimming hole when I was a girl. To which Nels says, her husband, Charles, is telling the truth. We do indeed need to show some leniency and understanding here. <laughs> yeah. Well, and of course, understanding is very important. But unfortunately, continued leniency has led to many being trapped in a sexual fantasy world in our world today. Jesus knew that true righteousness was not just about the action, but it's about your heart and what it is focused on and how you view other people. People are not to be used to fulfill our appetites. Now, Jesus was using poetic license again here, hyperbole this time. He knows that gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand doesn't stop your thought life. He knows that. The key idea here is that you may have to make some serious, radical adjustments to your life if you're going to be free when it comes to your sexual thought life. Now, if you've been here for a while, here at First Baptist, you know that I have no problem bringing up pornography. Well, just this week, I received an email from our Canada-wide church headquarters with a story about this, seeking to empower us as pastors to engage this issue. Listen to this. She stared at her husband as he sat on the couch, his hands clasped, head down, as she tried to digest what he just told her. How long? She finally asked. Well, since I was 14, he still couldn't look at her. His words froze her. 14. The implications of that stole her breath away. The entire time she had known him through their whole relationship and marriage, her husband had been battling a porn addiction and she had no idea. The only reason it was coming out now was because several other close people in their life had been confessing that they were struggling with their own addiction. It was staggering. Christian men she had respected and known her entire life were suddenly saying that they had been struggling with this for years. It had rocked her to her very core. Her foundation felt shifted. She had told her husband just yesterday how relieved she was that he, at least, wasn't among them. How wrong she was, how foolish. That's what really hurt 
how naive she had been about this whole issue. I'm so sorry, her husband said. Then he began to cry. He told her how a friend had introduced it to him when he was a teenager, how it had quickly consumed him. He tried to get help from his youth pastor and eventually his father, who had told him he would grow out of it. For years he struggled with it alone, doing well for months only to relapse and hate himself for it. The guilt and the shame were heavy and ever-present. He had no idea so many others struggled. No idea how common it was. For her, the realization of how common the issue of pornography was wasn't a comfort. It was another blow. This was common? Why wasn't it talked about then? Why did her husband think he was abnormal and struggled alone and ashamed for so long? Why did women not have support for one another to handle this? She felt like she just got initiated into a secret club that everyone knew about, but no one discussed. Unfortunately, pornography is not an innocent individual act. It does violence to those who it objectifies, to your relationship with your spouse, if they know about it or not, and to your relationship with God, who longs for you to know the goodness of your sexuality and not a falsehood. So if you want to deal with this part of your life and, and you need to, please talk to me or to someone that you trust. Jesus has freedom to offer you. And in verse 31 and 32, Jesus shows them that how they treated marriage and divorce was just as bad. It's not so much about following the rule as much as it's about how people are treated. In verse 31, again, he says, It has been said, anyone, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And a number of men there probably would have self-righteously nodded. Yo, oh yeah, when I divorced my wife, I gave her a certificate. But I tell you, he goes on to say, once again, letting them know that they're causing adultery with their actions and making a victim of their wife when they just send her away with a certificate. They may be living to the letter of the law without considering the humanity of the women they are affecting. Anyone could follow the letter of the law while still treating others as something to cast away. But Jesus says that they are missing true dikaiosune, true righteousness that treats others with justice and love. Now, thankfully, divorce is much different today, yet the challenge is to all of us not to treat our partners as someone that to, to just meet our needs or, or to cast away. God has so much for us to learn through marriage, even the hard parts. Whew. So much for gentle, easygoing Jesus. This guy is hard-hitting, calling us to live as we were truly meant to, which is not about following a set of rules. It's about caring for those around us, about responding in love and not anger, in love and not lust, seeing things through. It's about living at another level of wholeness and flourishing than we're used to. True righteousness is a grace-filled and others 
focused practice, not a checklist of following rules. Well, is this a bit idealistic? Well, maybe. Can we do this without him, without Jesus? No way. That's what we're seeing about. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. What those who were listening to on that hill that day wouldn't understand yet was how Jesus was going to fulfill everything. That he was going to take our sinfulness, our false righteousness, our bentness and brokenness with him to the cross. And then he would offer to us his true righteousness and the power to live it out as he lives in us. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church about this, saying, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is no one else that we can put our hope in, that we can bring our inner feelings of anger, our inner thoughts that we don't want. We can bring those to him and say, Jesus, give us your true nourishing righteousness to live as we were meant to live. And maybe those people on the hill didn't understand it all yet, but they were beginning to understand that this is the Christ, the Messiah, the true King, the cornerstone on which we can all build our lives. He is our righteousness. Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to put you as our cornerstone, to live out a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which only you can show us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I invite you once again to open your hands. Open hands to, to demonstrate an open heart to what God has for you as we go from this day. As you go from this service, may you know that Jesus came to bring the fullness of life to us all. True, right living. Not just following a set of rules, but living in the light and love of a merciful and holy, eternal God and that Jesus offers you the power to live that way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.